welcome to Activating Sustainability, the Anthesis podcast. My name is Chris Peterson, and as always, we're exploring key sustainability topics. Today's is around climate risk and TCFD, where we'll be unpacking the issues, dissecting the solutions, and hopefully inspiring others to share our vision. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by my Anthesis colleagues, Tim Clare, Director for Financial Services based in London, and Don Reed, Executive Director based out of Boston. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Excellent to be here. So maybe before we dig in, how are things? They're good. Doing very well, thanks, Chris. It's a very busy time, and that's a good thing. It's nice. Yeah, it feels like for so long we've been kind of fighting to get to this point that we've got the interest of the financial sector. Uh, we're operating the C-suite. People see the value of sustainability, um, and it's exciting to actually see it come to fruition now. I, I think it's a really exciting time at the moment, and. Uh... Looking at it with a UK context, we've just had a general election where each of the main political parties have tried to outdo each other on climate change. Um, a little bit boringly around who can plant the most trees, which is a little bit old school, but the fact that it was a central issue was amazing. And then you you, you look elsewhere and you watch the TV at night and the adverts have climate change as an issue. Brands are trying to outdo each other on the climate performance of their product. And airlines are racing in with the fact that they've offset all the emissions from their flights. And it's just a, it feels really, I always hate using the phrase exciting, but it feels quite exciting at the moment in terms of what's going on. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think, Tim, that's a great kind of segue for our topic today, which is around climate risk and TCFD, right? And thinking about how things have changed. And so I know the two of you kind of live in this world of the financial system, investors, disclosures, et cetera. But maybe for myself and listeners that aren't as familiar with it, can you give us kind of an update of what's going on within the space? A lot of our clients are very focused on the recent announcements by BlackRock, as well as State Street Global Advisors, encouraging them to adopt SASB and the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. And that really has gotten um, a number of companies, many companies, thinking about, do we like where we are on what we know about our risks associated with climate change, and are we ready to disclose more about that? Yeah, and I think the, the the interesting side about this is we, we end up talking about the TCFD and it's it's voluntary. I mean, that's the first thing to say. Um, unless it's it's as voluntary as your as your investors allow it to be, um, and if you're a UNPRI signatory, it's actually not voluntary. It's going to be something that you have to do. But depending on the jurisdiction, and particularly in Europe, there's actually also pieces of legislation that are coming along now which align with the TCFD or are asking firms to do elements of what the TCFD is going to ask you to do. So in the UK, you've got the uh, Streamlined Energy and Carbon Reporting framework kicking in this year. And it's a legal requirement on large firms um, to record in their financial statements um, how much energy they use, and then also publish information on their carbon footprints. And, and that's something that large quoted, uh, so listed equities businesses have had to do for a while. But this is suddenly a, a push on all sorts of other 
large businesses. So you've got this exciting time of legislation coming alongside the TCFD and driving companies to start thinking about these things at the same time that quite a few of them are starting to think, well, maybe we should do this anyway. So you've got a bit of a regulatory and a quasi-regulatory push. And then also companies on their own, by their own fruition, starting to think, no, I think we need to understand these things because these could be a risk. Yeah. And Don, is that what you're seeing as well? Because I think it's, I feel like we've had this conversation before, but this does feel different. And I'm curious to hear from the two of you, because it certainly the regulatory side, as you're saying, Tim, Don, it'd be interesting to hear from the US perspective, if that's the case as well. Mm-hmm. But also just that kind of, it feels like the investor community is really waking up to the real value that's at risk here. Right. Yeah, I think there's really an underlying issue and then a presenting issue about what's different today. So the underlying issue is investors have long said that ESG disclosures don't really meet their needs in that they don't speak to how their company's ESG strategy is creating value and how it fits with their core strategy. And investors now have lots of examples where they can look at particular concerns about the financial impact of climate change, you know, a specific ESG issue. And they see real physical changes in the world. They see policies trending towards more um, uh, action to manage those emissions and disclose more about them and not just UK, but really in jurisdictions around the world. And they see a select set of companies having really acute and particular risks. And they you know, point to examples like the PG&E bankruptcy from liabilities from wildfires caused by their transmission system uh, that's really underlying the, uh, you know, the climactic conditions in, in California. But there's, there's lots of other examples that the investment community sees about single companies. And so they're seeing pattern, like maybe we should better understand the financial side of climate change risk and make disclosures that are relevant to that understanding of what those risks are. And so that's kind of like the underlying background. And the standard for doing that, TCFD, has been, you know, is not brand new or something, but there's greater interest in seeing actual reporting on it and really pushing for the quality of reporting by the uh, investors. And the most immediate presenting issue is BlackRock's CEO, BlackRock, you know, largest asset manager in the world, $7.5 trillion um, dollars, uh, under management, and a universal owner, really. They, they, they own really every publicly traded company in the world. And annually, Larry Fink the CEO sends a letter to his fellow CEOs and operating companies and others. And, and this year, he's very focused on ESG, climate change risk. And it really has, I think, drawn a lot of attention because it's provocative, makes powerful arguments. And it's had real impact amongst other asset managers in terms of how um, he's described that, but certainly amongst issuers or operating companies that issue securities going like, oh, okay, are we really ready if this is the representative of the broader trend over time? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And 
because it, it strikes me that we've heard this from Larry Fink for five years now, mm-hmm. right? That there's been a sense of, like you said, some provocative statements, some statement of somebody should be doing something about this kind of perception. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, but it certainly seems like we're seeing that escalation, whether it's them geolocating, generating stations for electric utilities to understand how that maps against climate risk or you know, his statements about starting to investigate divestitures of oil and gas or high carbon industries, uh-huh. right? That, you know, are you feeling that, that this is different that we, when we think about say like on our strategy work of that maturity model, that they are transitioning into a different phase of maturity, or does this feel like kind of the same, same again? Well, so we work on both the financial services and the operating company side. And we see that increase in maturity about how they are integrating these issues into strategy and investment decision-making. And so it's there's a certain you know, progression in maturity on both sides and that's represented here. But I think it's also the urgency of the climate crisis that really you know, um, is, is driving that. It's harder and harder to say this isn't a relevant um, investment deci- uh, decision criteria, but people are still struggling with how best to do that. But let's be clear, Larry Fink is also, what he said is pretty heavy. He said, the evidence of climate risk is compelling investors to reassess core assumptions about modern finance. That's really quite provocative. It's not like, oh, this is an incremental change we should make. It's saying that this um, topic is integral to how we cons- you know, evaluate securities, construct portfolios, and manage risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think mean, you, you, you've got Larry Fink, and then you've got Mark Carney, the soon-to-be-outgoing governor of the Bank of England, being equally blunt. He's you know, gone in straight with statements and He's heavily linked to the the TCFD, but straight statements, companies that do not take climate change seriously will go bust. And, you know, when the uh, one of the world's most important central bankers makes a statement like that, it's not a mucking around statement. And it it sets it sets people listening. And um, I just do think that people are there's, there's just a general assumption now around the world, around boardrooms that the world is going to change and they are seeing evidence of it in real terms and in terms of how it impacts their business and therefore uh, and as don said it might be a physical change uh, you know, we've been seeing the wildfires in australia most recently and what that's done for quite a few businesses has been and supply changes has been quite interesting but then there's the policy response and uh, in the last i think week or so in the uk the UK decided to bring forward the date at which you would no longer be able to buy a petrol, diesel, or hybrid. And it used to be that you'd be able to buy a plug-in hybrid moving forward, but they've been included. You will no longer be able to buy a petrol, diesel, or hybrid car in the UK by 2035. So suddenly you've got 15 years and 15 years is still a hell of a long time, including in the context of the climate crisis. It could be it could be too long, but you've got 15 years in which, if you're a car manufacturer, your models have got to completely change. And if you are uh, in petrol retail, has an impact. And if you are in a whole world of other business areas, you're going to have to think how this affects you. 
the following legislation in the UK, we already have planning requirements around if you have a certain number of parking spaces for a new facility, having to make sure there's a certain number of charging slots. But the natural follow-on is going to be that suddenly people are going to have to get these charging uh, charging facilities into car parks, whether you're a hotel owner or you're an office or whatever, and that's going to have a legislative push. Now, that's going to be a cost on some people, but also a fantastic opportunity for some people. And I think this is where it gets interesting. Businesses are seeing this and seeing this in a whole variety of other ways and realizing the world for them is going to change. Consumer attitudes are going to change. And so the risk is real. The old days of going, do you know what? Climate change doesn't really matter. I can't see how it impacts us. That's changing. And uh, you can no longer really sit there and quite pull out that excuse. Yeah, and it's fascinating to see that contrast. And to your point, Tim, I know CDP and their summary from last year was saying that like 215 biggest companies Mm -hmm. assessed about a trillion dollars at risk from climate change over the next five years. Right. And so it's like you said, it's that tangible piece that's coming in. I'm struck by the the contrast between the two conversations. Right. We hear Don kind of representing North America, the US, talking about Larry Fink and kind of the business solution to it. Tim, hearing you talk about Mark Carney, uh, former Canadian. I'll just put that out there. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, and and the regulatory solution to that, right? And it seems to follow that model that we've seen of Kind of Europe being more top-down driven, US in particular more kind of market solution to it. Is that is that kind of how both of you are feeling that this is going and is likely to go, or do you think that there will be kind of a merging of those over time? Personally, I think there's the the I think you can the, the market is equally strong here, and the market push and consumer demand driving the market is. It is as strong as the regulation. In some respects, the regulation is still going to catch up. And you know, whilst we've got policy push here to change the energy mix quicker, there's actually still one could argue that the the ban on petrol cars, etc., was an easy thing for the government to call because it involved them spending any money. Um, so, but I do think the market is going to push this as well. But Europe um, ju- just traditionally has been stronger. In certain elements of this regulation, and the the UK being outside of the EU will probably make no difference to that in some respects. Will albeit that's still to be seen. Um, so the market is equally there, right? And if you think about what are all the different sources of climate risk, policy and legal are perhaps the easiest to observe, uh, you know, from. Uh, at the landscape level, and they're really important, but they're big differences regionally for a lot of our big corporate clients that leads them to think about, well, how can we have one standard globally, not just what do we do differently in Europe than we do in the rest of the world. But there are other big sources of, of climate change risk technology and disruption around low carbon um, technologies really in all manner, not just energy production, which is what people think of first, but there's lots and lots of examples of other types of technology change that are part of decarbonization. Um, Markets, increasing consumer behaviors around this, um, around preferences for better um, products with better um, carbon outcomes. 
There's their own business reputation and branding. And we increasingly see, not just in, in Europe, but really around the world, big consumer brands looking to really build effective action on climate change as a part of their brand promise. And then on the physical side, you have both the chronic long-term long changes in the climate that are maybe harder to grasp moment to moment, but then and but you really see them in long-term drought, you know, in Australia, in California, et cetera. And then you also have the acute uh, events of like severe weather. And all that is part of the landscape of the risks. And so, yes, there are different environments around policy change on this uh, around the world. But uh, that's only one of, of a number of factors that play into the risk profile. Mm. No, that's great. I really appreciate the perspective and the different perspectives from across the pond. And maybe, maybe to challenge ourselves a little bit and make sure we're not just operating in the echo chamber of sustainability mm -hmm. and hearing the things we want. Um, PwC did their CEO survey ahead of Davos this year and said, found that over half the CEOs expected GDP and their growth to decline. Right or weren't expecting significant growth this year, you know, and climate change dropped out of the top ten topics that they're high, highly concerned about. So, you know, given that context, kind of where where are we now, and does that mm -hmm. does that change things? Does that take this off of the immediate dashboards and agendas, and does it go into a holding pattern in the short term, right. or what are you seeing or thinking? Well, it's really important not to be. Pollyannish about this or alarmist, but I think the um, the underlying reality for uh, companies is that that the change is afoot, and that there are definitely different time horizons, and that's really one of the challenge. That's probably the most fundamental challenges that companies have, and that we're really you know talking about here. The annual survey of CEOs, what's your most important issue? What's the time horizon of CEOs? They necessarily in the you know link to the capital markets and have to think about their returns, you know, if not quarterly, at least annually, and how and what's most likely to affect that. And climate change risks, all of those risks we just catalog don't move maybe at the same, don't have the same time horizon. And that's not to say that physical risks are off in the future. The physical risks are in the present, absolutely. But a lot of the those big impacts, changes in policy, technology, markets, really all of them really do tend to change over longer periods of time than the than, than CEOs are typically focused on. And that actually is also one of the challenges with doing good climate risk analysis, because the time horizons for many of the scenarios that are out there and many of the um, and, and many of those changes is really longer than many corporate planning horizons, but certainly within the lives of many of the assets that people are putting capital in. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of a conundrum and a challenge from the analytical standpoint. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I was curious with even thinking about Brexit as that more immediate thing that is taking a lot of CEO attention at the moment. Yeah, then and, 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 and Brexit will do. And then to, to be honest, it's an interesting point because we're now, you know, the start of February, 
having this conversation and we've got the rest of the year where it's all sort of plateauing until they've got to get the trade deal done before the end of the year and there's discussions about where environmental regulation will sit within that um mm. but to be honest uh, climate change is strong enough and i think what's what in brexit terms the other really interesting thing is the cop 26 conference uh will be in the uk will be in scotland um towards the end of the year um and it's Boris Johnson's chance to demonstrate on the world stage what a phenomenal guy he is. Um, and so I think in some respects, climate change, is, it, it, the, the Brexit thing will be to an extent shadowed by that. And it, I think it's, it's, that's going to be a strong push in the UK to make sure that doesn't get in the way. But I suppose what I was, I was going to say you know, in terms of you know, what, what's the reality for me, one of the interesting things, I do a lot of my work with private equity, and th th they've always been incredibly hard taskmasters, and there's been, always been interesting working for them in terms of they ask the, you know, they, they genuinely want to know that the, the money they're going to spend with us if we're advising them on ESG or climate change is worth it. Um, and they've been historically quite cynical a lot of the time. But it's it's what's really surprising me is how they, as a very commercial group, are actually sitting there and saying, you know, no, we've got to get this done. And still, that's partly driven by the fact the pension funds who have invested in them, the uh, they have put down requirements on them. But there is more and more of a feel that they can see change and they they're conscious of what's happening in the market, and they're also sniffing the opportunities in this. But I think what's really interesting around what Don was saying around the the timeline that CEOs see things. What's really interesting about the TCFD is it, amongst the various things it asks you to do, it does to, it asks you to do two things. It asks you to, if you haven't already, and if you're a large listed institution, you may already have calculated your carbon footprint. Um, but it asks you to calculate your scope one, scope two, and some of your scope three emissions. And that's that's exciting because lots of firms have held off doing it. And there's that old adage, until you measure it, you can't manage it. But the really interesting thing is, um, and what's really great from my perspective about the TCFD is, it asks you to formally do a scenario analysis on what climate change is gonna mean to your business under a couple of different climate futures. And so that suddenly removes this sense that the if they're pushed into having to do some TCFD reporting, this removes the CEO sitting there going, do you know what, it's not as um, important as X and Y, and it forces them into actually having to think through this in a formulaic process. And I think that's what's really interesting here, is suddenly you're going to have firms sitting down trying to follow a methodology and thinking through exactly what climate change means to that business and its operations. Yeah, fascinating. And like you say, having that insight changes the game, right? That it's not an opinion. You're starting to base that off of some clear data and insight. And maybe maybe that's a transition into the, you know, how, how would individuals look to take some first steps within this space or to improve what they're doing already? Well, in our mind, <clears throat> the starting place is really to understand what you're trying to achieve. And so many 
companies kind of hear TCFD and kind of think reporting lead. Oh, this is like a compliance obligation, although it's voluntary, but I would treat it as such. I'm supposed to do a TCFD report, so let me do a TCFD report. And we think that you really want to be fact-led. You need to do the research about what your real climate risks are and to begin the process of giving those financial dimension. And that's really what TCFD is asking for under different scenarios. It's the, the part of TCFD that is most new and different, and it is challenging to do that. But, you, but, but that's really that fact-led approach is essential. And there's a number of things you can do to get started, but recognize that if your objective is really to improve risk-adjusted returns, to manage these risks and opportunities effectively over the long term, then you really need to do it in a way where you're engaged across the organization, you're working with enterprise risk management, and to the degree company has that function, but to really build that into the organizational process for evaluating and managing those risks, but also engaging others in other functions in the organization that have a, a stake in these issues that can be strategy, supply chain, product development, you know, facilities, um, and, and, and others, depending kind of on the specifics of the, of the industry, but that being focused on research and analysis on financial dimensions and engaging uh, others and thinking about that time horizon question. So saying like, okay, there are things that are important to our business that may be outside of a three-year planning horizon, but they're definitely enterprise risks worthy of analysis and and integration and integrating climate risk into that perspective um, are some of the key things that we find are most important to get uh, you know get the um, to get effective action started. Yeah, no, great, and I know you know when we've talked in the past, there's those two sides. So one is the insights, and then the second piece is that disclosure. Would either of you like to speak to kind of, you know, Don, I think you laid a great foundation of what's needed to know and inform those decisions internally, but then how do you maximize value in terms of how you're communicating that to your stakeholders or your investors going forward? Or what are those emerging expectations around disclosures there? Well, the TCFD gives you guidance. It also has, you know, specific guidance for specific industries, but the core is really pretty fundamental. It follows the same fundamentals as financial reporting. Like you should evaluate these issues and make a determination about how material they are to your, your um, performance. And so that's a, that's a key step in the whole process. And so we encourage our clients to identify priority issues uh, business issues to say, these are the climate risks we think we are most exposed to and why, and we understand the pathway to value, how this risk could actually lead to financial consequences and specific financial consequences, and then be able to evaluate those changes uh, in financial terms. And then you come to the disclosure question. And usually you would also want to be able to you know, sort of say, what's our, our, our climate change plan that optimizes the results. And when you know that, you then face the disclosure questions of 
how material is this? Is it a material issue that we should be disclosing in our financial reporting? We know that that's what TCFD says, but that has not happened to any degree so far. People are disclosing it separately in separate documents or with their um, sustainability report or in other venues, but not directly in their financial disclosures for the most part. But if it's material, that's what you do. You disclose it in those those venues, and you you explain why you uh, what you have done in terms of the analysis, what your conclusions are, and then how you're managing those risks. And TCFD is a very complete framework for doing that. But uh, but again, the 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 disclosure is about what are the financial impacts, or the key key part of the disclosure is what are those financial impacts. And for many of our clients, they feel that that analysis is still maturing. And so they're kind of cautious about how much they disclose and, and in what venue they disclose. But they do talk about what their activity has been around evaluating the risk, where they see the priorities and where their speed of what their trajectory is and what their speed of travel is. Mm. It's going to agree with Dawn and say you know, that there is going to be a lot of learning around this. Uh, there's a there's a whole methodology, science and art to be uh, worked through in how people present this information. But I think one of the crucial things will be the fact that companies aren't silent on it will be seen uh-huh. as a positive without a doubt. Is the more businesses fail to have any commentary, um, the more that they will struggle uh, to give comfort to their investors that they are a positive, ongoing concern. Wonderful. Well, that's a lot to take in. And as you said, Tim, kind of a work in progress. And I think it's fascinating to see where we are, how far we've come. I know, Don, you and I did a podcast just about a year ago, and it's fascinating Mm -hmm. just to hear how much it has matured over that time within it. You know, before we wrap up, gentlemen, I just want to say thank you very much. Uh, You know, it's really fascinating topic. It's really critical to everything we're aspiring to achieve, the excitement we talked about at the start of the call, uh, and really appreciate the time and insight. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, Again, really appreciate your time. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have your own experiences you're keen to share, if you have any questions, any suggestions, uh, we're always available. I would love to hear from you. We can be reached via tim.clares, that's C-L-A-R-E, don.reed, that's D-O-N dot R-E-E-D or Christoph Peterson, all at Anthesis Group. And uh, yeah, once again, thanks again. And until next time. Thank you. All the best.